Welcome back to Molecule to Market, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, it is me, Roman Segal, here again to take you inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. And today my guest is Claire Aldridge, Chief Strategy Officer at Form Bio. So Claire has got such an interesting kind of background and she took the time to talk to me about various things and the different parts of her kind of experience as an academic, as an investor, as an entrepreneur, but ultimately led her to her role at Form Bio. Um, it's interesting because one of the one of the fascinating things about Claire is just the different facets to her personality. And we explore kind of her entrepreneurial spirit and where that came from. And it turns out her family had a ritual of, of solving puzzles, which turned, which has certainly played a role in her developing that. One of the things I found particularly interesting in this discussion today was Claire is based in Northern Texas, not an area I have a huge knowledge about. I've actually been there, but it's not something somewhere I would necessarily recognize as a destination for biotech and life sciences. But that is something that is certainly becoming the case now. So listen out for that as well. Given Claire's uh, background as an immunologist, she was very... Um, prominent in the uh, the dealings with with COVID and ended up going viral uh, for being viral as she managed to catch COVID very early on in in the pandemic. So she talks about her role uh, during that time where she came <laughs> a bit of a minor celebrity um, through education and just informing people and the business that she works for. Again, it's a, it's a wider trend that I'm seeing, which is like these really interesting technology businesses that are coming into the outsourcing space with a view to disrupting and improving the way things are done. So we explore things like machine learning, AI, and exactly how uh, Form Bios technology helps companies in the biopharma space. Really fascinating stuff. Um, if it seems like my questions are a bit rushed today, it's because there were we had a few um, recording errors uh, that we kept on dropping off a couple of times. So so we've stitched the podcast together and hopefully it makes, uh, there's nothing, you know, terrible that comes into your ears, but the pace of the podcast was probably faster than usual. You can always slow us down if you want, which you can do on your podcast player. So for background, Claire is a PhD and a chief strategy officer for Form Bio, the first spin out from the de-extinction and biodiversity company, Colossal Biosciences. Prior to this role, she was senior VP Chief of Staff and Corporate Strategy at Tasha Gene Therapies, a Dallas-based company focused on eradicating monogenic CNS disease. She previously served as Associate VP for Commercialization and Business Development at UT Southern Medical Center and VP of Venture Development at Remedetex Ventures, a local biotech venture fund. She brings more than 20 years experience facilitating the translation of scientific discoveries into patient and commercial benefits and is also on the scientific advisory board of Colossal Biosciences, the board of directors for Medcognetics and 4E Therapeutics. She's also the chair for the Industry Advisory Council for the UT Dallas Department of Biomedical Engineering. If that's not enough, she received a PhD from Duke University in the Department of Immunology and Program in Genetics and a Bachelor of Science in Biomedical Science from Texas A&M University. Wow, impressive stuff. 
So enjoy today's episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to listen to Molecules Market. Please rate the uh, today's podcast on the app store of your choice and give our uh, podcast a little share with someone else in the industry. And as always, thank you to my team for pulling this together. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's show. Hi, Claire. Welcome to the show. Hi, Roman. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure having you here and uh, I'm excited for our conversation. The uh, pre-research that we did on you gave me lots of avenues to go down. So I'm excited to fire <laughs> lots of questions at you and uh, get your perspective on lots of matters. But before I do that, give our listener a bit of an overview of yourself, Claire, and how you ended up in the life science space. Of course. So I trained as a scientist, did a PhD in immunology and genetics, but knew about halfway through I wasn't uh, particularly cut out for the bench work of science, but still had a lifelong passion for science and and a goal to try to, to move science forward and, and have it get uh, adopted in the marketplace. And a, a big kind of important thing that happened to lead to that was right before I defended my PhD, my father was diagnosed with metastatic melanoma and given a little bit less than two years to live. Um, that was in 1996. And uh, luckily, he was able to get in a clinical trial and he was a responder in the clinical trial. So I'm happy to report that this past summer, we got to celebrate 60 years of wedded bliss with he and my mother. But that really gave me some thoughts on how can I do that? How can I be part of that? Part of giving people uh, more time with their, their, their husband, their father, their child, their sibling. So my career has always been in how do we translate scientific discovery, scientific discovery that someone else discovers and turn that into products. And so while my career has very much been a mosey, the thread that has gone through all of it is how do we take scientific discovery and translate it into something that can benefit patients or humanity at large. Thanks for sharing uh, such a personal story, but it's obviously been very pertinent to your life and in your career. So to take us through some of the, the roles that you've had and that ultimately led you down the track to, to form bio and what you do today. Absolutely. So I uh, first got introduced to the commercializ commercialization of science in the late 90s when I joined the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center uh, in their tech transfer office. And that was very much an, an entry level position. But I got the opportunity to work with the faculty of this you know, incredibly basic science oriented institution to understand which of these discoveries one, were patentable, right? Which, which were something that we could file a patent or some other type of protection, copyright, trade secret. Um, but then also to do the work to say, how do we look at what problems in the marketplace could this solve? And so I, I first got introduced to that there. And then I got to work on um, spinning out a company from UT Southwestern Riata Pharmaceuticals, which is still a going concern here in North Texas. And, um, and that was a ton of fun. And that really taught me about that industry piece of science. How do we actually do scientific discovery? Uh, I call it commercialization, not curiosity. How do you move things along that clinical development path? Um, but after I worked on that for a while, I kind of recognized that I wanted to go get a little bit different experience. And so I had an opportunity to join the American Heart Association, which the national offices for that nonprofit are here in North Texas as well. And there I got to work 
on um, the quality of care and how do we make sure scientific guidelines are followed at the point of care. One of the things I think cardiovascular disease is a great example of is one where we know a lot of the things that work, they just don't always get adopted in the marketplace. And so they had some um, programs to try and change that. And so that really taught me about how hard it is to actually change the care at, at the point of care. How do you actually change physician behavior, change patient behavior, which ultimately did um, affect my investing thesis when I became a, a venture capitalist. But after I did that for a few years, I went back to UT Southwestern and I uh, got an opportunity to do fundraising for the Simmons Cancer Center, which is a, an NCI designated cancer center at the University of Texas um, Southwestern Medical Center. And there, what was interesting about that, again, same thing, the translation of science, there it was getting philanthropic donors or funders to understand the impact of the science that they were supporting. Um, you know, with philanthropy, people want to make these gifts and they want them to have an impact. And I got to hone my skills at, at helping people understand the impact of their dollars. Because sometimes when you're thinking about that basic science, it's not um, directly applicable to the clinic. And so I had to, to learn and teach them how to think about this is the first step in a long path of turning something into a product that could change the outcome of care. And then I returned to the tech transfer office for a year and did a lot of um, work building the community, doing uh, faculty education and, and things like that, helping them understand that commercialization pathway. Then I had an opportunity to join a venture fund, which was a ton of fun where we were tasked with both returning capital as well as capitalizing on the science that we have in Texas and trying to keep that science in Texas um, rather than exporting it uh, to the coasts. And we were a successful venture fund as far as returning capital was concerned. We were the first money in with the column group with a company called um, Peloton. I like to say the cancer company, not the bikes. Um, that was acquired by Merck for over $2 billion in 2019. And we had a number of other exits, but we weren't able to capitalize on what we had as far as the region. Um, we weren't able to keep the companies in North Texas. Our portfolio migrated to the coasts. So we made a strategic decision to wind that fund down. And I started working closely with the family office that had funded our venture fund, and then we started working on a particularly fun project called Pegasus Park, which would love for you to, to check out at some point in time. That is a 750,000 square foot campus for social and scientific innovation. And it's very close to UT Southwestern, but we got the first shared lab space uh, sponsored by Biolabs in the middle of the country. It was their first time to not put a space in on the, the coasts. And it has uh, it's already over 50% full and it hasn't even been open a year. The tech transfer office moved into that. Um, we have brought in all the universities of the region. So UT Dallas is involved, SMU, UNT Health Science Center, UNT and Denton, and then also a lot of our um, entrepreneurial programs. We have a Blackstone Launchpad there, our Health Wildcatters Accelerator, Capital Factory. So what we did is because we don't have the concentration that the coasts have, specifically San Francisco, Boston, we created that. We created a place where we can have all those collisions occur in a physical location since we don't have it kind of naturally because we're so spread out in North Texas. 
And during that time, I went back to UT Southwestern for my third tour of duty. I told you it was a mosey. Um, and I helped reimagine tech transfer there. I brought the ideas that I had learned as a venture capitalist to say, how do we become partners with our community, with our entrepreneurs, with our funders, rather than kind of being adversarial tech transfer offices. It's, it's very easy for um, them to get adversarial with their partners. And we decided let's break those walls down and be a partner and let's share the risk as well as sharing in the upside. And so that led to a lot of great startups coming out of the region and a lot of companies making the decision to um, locate close by in the biolabs. And then uh, I joined one of those startups briefly, uh, but it was during that time I got to know the founding team of Colossal, the company that is de-extincting the woolly mammoth. And while I was thrilled that that George Church company was going to be based in North Texas, what I was most excited about in that company was that the team of founders was uh, predominantly from the software space. And I had started to recognize over the years prior that, that AI and machine learning and bioinformatics and all of these cool things were really starting to mature in biotechnology, but we had never brought sophisticated software development to it. And so having these sophisticated software guys saying, we're going to develop software to help with this biodiversity and de-extinction product, I thought that is so cool. And then as they built it out, we started talking about what other use cases could we solve for. And so it was through that work that we recognized that the platform that they built to facilitate genome analysis and CRISPR editing of, of you know, elephant embryos, all of that could be applied broadly across synthetic biology and biotechnology and, and accelerate all of those kind of discoveries. So we decided to spin it out into a company and FormBio was born and I had an opportunity to join and I actually came out of retirement for the opportunity. I was actually trying to take some time off and, and didn't do very well at that. So I joined Form and it's been a ton of fun learning about the, the marriage of sophisticated software development with machine learning and AI and bioinformatics. Sorry, that was a very wordy answer. No, 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 that's that's exactly what I hope for is because you've got such extensive experience in academia, in entrepreneurialism, in investing, in biotech, in life science generally, but you uh, summarized it really, really well. And one thing one thing I found about you, and it's funny, right at the start, you talked about your, yourself having a lifelong love of science. And I noticed in an article, you're referred, referred to as a lifelong science geek. So where does that, you seem to have an entrepreneurial mindset and an entrepreneurial spirit about you. Otherwise, I don't think FormBio might have been the right place for you as well. Where, where does that come from? Because it's not always complementary with academia and research. And so I was just curious where that, that part, is that something from your family? Is that something that just been nurtured as you've gone along the journey? You know, I think, uh, one, kind of growing up in my family, we were a very puzzle-oriented family, um, all kinds of puzzles, word puzzles, number puzzles, jigsaw puzzles. And so when I think about what I like to do, that's what I like to do. I like to solve the puzzle. Um, I like to do the work to think about the puzzle. I like to um, add in my experience from previous puzzles and kind of bring all of that together to say, what is the most likely next step for this? And what is that strategic plan? How do we take this 
in the most direct fashion? And how do we look five, six, seven steps ahead? So we do today what will benefit us um, a little bit later. So that's what I like to do. I love problem solving. I love puzzles. And so I think that's kind of where the entrepreneurial spirit comes from because, um, you know, that's what being an entrepreneur is, seeing a problem in the marketplace that you think you can solve. And so, um, you know, I really, you know, to this day, I still love puzzles. That's fascinating. And that's exactly how I think of entrepreneurialism is just, it's problem solving. So that (laughs) makes sense that you're a fan of puzzles. Talk to me about um, computational, Form Bio as a computational life sciences platform. Like, what does that mean? Because we've, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of jargon in the market. There's a lot of, uh, there's actually guests that we've on, that we've had on the podcast that have talked about uh, AI and I suppose different aspects of technology that are being used in life sciences. But describe Form Bio or the business as a computational life sciences platform in a way that I suppose is easy for people to understand. Because I think that's one of the challenges is just getting over that sense of understanding uh, for a business like Form Bio. Absolutely. You know, that really is the challenge. Anytime you're in an entrepreneurial world and you're, you're doing something that's, that's pretty disruptive, there's, there's that education component because you're solving a problem sometimes people don't even know they have. Um, when you think about a lot of disruptive technologies, there's that, that, you know, to use some enzyme kinetics, activation energy to get people to say, oh, I need to, I need to use this. This, this makes a lot of sense. Um, there's two pieces to the form bio platform that I want to, to touch on. One is the bioinformatics piece of it, the management of your data, the being able to easily run your data through a cutting edge validated algorithms, and then being able to easily visualize that and collaborate with people either in your institution or across institutions. Part of the reason FormBio was developed was to facilitate the collaboration between Colossal and Harvard and now other academic institutions. So these tools that allow a scientist to be a scientist and not have to be a computer programmer or a data scientist or anything like that. So to take the tools that are um, you know, some of these are in um, the open open source, some of them are proprietary, but to, to basically wrap all of this in a user interface that makes it simple and intuitive to use. So scientists can just say, I want to understand some of the insights out of this data easily. I don't want to have to wait for my bioinformatics core. I don't want to have to learn Python. I just want to be able to get the Um, insights out of this so I can either understand the next step in the commercial development or the next step in my scientific discovery. I think about it kind of the the leap that we made when you didn't have to know how to make an Excel chart. You could just use one of those wizards. So a lot of these is wizards that just walk you through which, you know, which genome do you want to compare this to? You know, here are three different algorithms that will look at your RNA-seq data. Let's do them in parallel and see how they change what what insights you get out of that. Here's what you did the last time you did this experiment. Let's use those exact same parameters um, so that your work becomes reproducible and validated. So that is a a key portion of of the program and something that I think should be adopted broadly across biotechnology, synthetic biology, academic research, so that biologists and biotechnology companies can stay in the business of doing science and have the tools to get the insights. You know, the data we're generating now is so massive that, you know, the human mind can't 
look at it with all the parameters that it comes to. But if you can have somebody kind of some, you know, software platform that shows you a little bit, gives you some some insights that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise, then that can really inform your next steps. So that's important. The other part of the form bio platform that I think really takes it to the next level is that ML and AI, we've layered on top of this, um, you know, basic bioinformatics platform. And I've been in this space long enough, you've been in this space long enough to know there's been a lot of ML and AI solutions that haven't panned out when uh, when we when we took it into the the world of biology, I think sometimes biology wakes up and likes to eat software. But um, definitely the problems that FormBio sought to solve were problems that did lend themselves to ML and AI rather than trying to you know majestically say we're going to solve small molecule drug development. Um, or even, you know, protein folding, the amount of computing power that, that Google and Facebook and these other groups had to put to, you know, AlphaFold, that's not something for a small startup to be able to do. So in working with some partners, uh, especially some gene therapy partners, we determined that looking at the constructs that go into the manufacturing process was a place that was ripe for some ML and AI um, analysis and observation to change the output of that large bioreactor manufacturing process. We like to call it design for manufacturing. When we've talked with uh, gene therapy companies, cell therapy companies, what we have really grown to understand is that there has not been the advances that we've done in, in small molecule drug development, for example. In small molecules, one of the first things you do is you say, how can I scale this? How can I make this in, how can I make kilograms of this drug, not just micrograms at the bench top to do some experiments with? We haven't done that with these advanced therapeutics. So, you know, with this design for manufacturing, it's let's look at that construct and let's layer on AI and ML, which takes into account the free energy of these bonds. It takes into account secondary and tertiary structures like hairpins. It takes into account the CPG islands and the methylation that all lead to um, kind of you know, these are fluid environments. It's not like it's a static structure, but leads to situations where the replication machinery is more or less likely to fall off. And so let's let's make some tweaks. Let's do some codon optimization. Let's do some other substitutions so we can increase the amount of drug that comes out the other end. Um, and that makes one a more efficient process. So it brings the cost down. And uh, it also makes for a safer product because if you have fewer half full um, capsids, half full drug with, you know, contaminations or something that, that you know, quit replicating halfway through, you're reducing the amount of, of capsid that you're delivering to the patient and really maximizing for the number of full um, drugs that you're able to give the patient. Um, you know, a lot of the work that's going on right now to work on this process is around optimizing the purification step or optimizing the stable cell line you use. All of those are amazing and, and certainly necessary. But if what you're putting in hasn't been optimized, none of those other steps are going to make as much of a difference. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. It's really fascinating to just to understand, I suppose, how your tools 
are potentially impacting the process in it, it's a great way you've articulated it actually uh, just in terms of the listener and myself actually being able to understand the role and I have to ask you about the cut like when I look at form bio it really strikes me as a real mix of techies and scientists so is that a fair is that a fair assumption and also what what does that mean for the culture of the organization because they're not always you know, on one hand, they're all geeks. On the other hand, you've got a, you know really <laughs> right. scientific related guys and more and I don't know more trendy, cool tech type types. You know, what tell us about what's it like on the inside and what the culture's <laughs> like there. You probably noticed our website is way cooler than most biotech <laughs> websites for sure. I did. I was very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> the software people are so much edgier and better at visualization. Um, I will. I will definitely agree with that. Uh, one of the things that I loved about this company that made me want to join was that combination of um, amazingly trained people in both bioinformatics, ML and AI, and then you know software engineering and user interface. And you're right; they are all different kinds of geeks. But there is um, kind of a, a fundamental um, respect and recognition. A way I like to describe it is um, everybody has a piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Let's, you know, the theme of puzzles is going to run through this entire podcast. And in this particular instance, because of both the talent that we've brought around the table and the personalities of that talent, everybody knows that their puzzle piece is the same size as everyone else's. But without everybody's puzzle piece, we don't have a picture. And so what's been really cool to watch is how these very disparate groups have an appreciation for what the other groups do, but also a recognition and a healthy sense of, but here's what I bring to the table. So it's kind of neat to see how everyone's put their talents in the middle of the table and stirred it up and said, we've made something that is pretty different and pretty special and um, you know, kind of honors everybody's experience and their talents. And we have so many advanced degrees. That's one of the things I really love about this company is that level of expertise, but the appreciation that their piece is not any more or less valuable than anyone else's. Everyone's piece needs to come together to make that picture. It's lovely. It's a really nice way of, uh, again, continuing the puzzle theme <laughs> and describing and uh, I suppose respecting all of the different areas of expertise that are, are brought to the table. And you touched on Pegasus Park and, and Dallas, if you like, in particular as a destination for biotech and life sciences. And I'm racking my brains of over 100 episodes and I don't think Texas has come up other than, I know there's a couple of manufacturing sites that, that you know, a couple of other big CDMOs own down there. So Tell us, and you, you mentioned as well, right, in your introductory part of it about the challenge of ideas and in, in, in life sciences being sent to the coast. So talk to us about the destination, if you like, for biotech and life sciences. In, from the perspective of do you see it being a bit of a powerhouse in the future? Uh, is that the kind of aim for Dallas, you know, to compete with the likes of you know, Boston and the RTP and obviously San Diego, San Francisco? Is that is that the ultimate aim? And, and how is how is Dallas doing today? 
So this, I could do a whole additional podcast on this, <laughs> and I might have to, you know, throw in some Texasisms. Um, so oh, please do. You, you may have to explain them to me, but I'm, I'm, I'm up for that. That's not. That's you're not all fun. in. Well, one of my personal yeah. favorites is to to describe something that's hard, which getting biotech established in Texas is 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 like stapling jello to a tree. Um, so basically, what we've been working on for the last twenty years, and I don't think I need to explain that. I think it's self-explanatory. Um, we have been working on this for a long time, over twenty years, um, since the mid '90s, because we've had amazing scientific discovery, not just at UT Southwestern, but across our state. You know, everybody's heard of MD Anderson. UT Southwestern has Nobel laureates who. Um, were foundational for drugs that, that lots of people take today, including the statins. Um, UT Austin has, has done amazing work. UT San Antonio, UT Health Science Center San Antonio, again, not a super well-known place, but there's a huge military presence there. So the work that's being done there on traumatic brain injury and um, other things that are specific for our, um, our veterans, great, cool work happening. But we spent a lot of time trying to be Boston trying to be San Francisco. And when we started this most recent reimagining of what we wanted to do, we said, we're not Boston, we're not San Francisco. The closest thing we are is the, is the triangle. Um, but even that, that's, that's, we don't have three world-class institutions that you could bike between if you, you know, had a good breakfast. So what we decided to focus on is one, biomanufacturing. We are really uh, kind of doubling down on that because we have the space and we're doing a lot of work both with um, you know, building those plants, but also training the workforce. We're putting together some programs that are specific for our community colleges, as well as our um, institutes, um, you know, colleges and, and universities to make sure we have the workforce for that. But we have problems that the coasts can't solve. One of the biggest problems that the coasts can't solve is how do you translate these scientific discoveries to underserved areas, especially rural areas? And FormBio actually supports this goal. Um, so what we're trying to build is a place where we are not just trying to move science to the next phase of development. We're also asking, how do we make it scalable? How do we use technology to get it to places that don't have an academic medical center close by? For the most part, everyone along the coast can get their healthcare at an academic medical center. They're very close. There's lots of them. The density of the people is very different. But what we saw through COVID is that we really have almost two healthcare systems. People in the rural parts of the US do not have access to these latest and greatest, whether it's a cell therapy or a gene therapy, any of those kind of solutions. So how do we build a laboratory to ask that question? How do we translate these discoveries and make them scalable? make them accessible. I like to say to the panhandle in Oklahoma and the panhandle in Idaho. And if we can solve some of these problems, then we can transform healthcare across the middle of the country and across the world. A lot of those problems are global. And the other thing we're focusing on a lot, Texas is an incredibly diverse state. Uh, I think, I believe Houston is the most um, diverse city in the in the country. I think it goes back and forth with New York as far as representatives from around the globe. And we know that we have a problem with diversity in research and diversity in clinical trials. So we're also working to say, how do we create an infrastructure as well as a, a trust system to help diversify our clinical trials 
um, not just ethnically, but also around, you know, getting those kind of experimental therapeutics to the rural areas for people who might be perfect candidates, uh, but because they're in rural areas might never hear about it. How do we change that story as well? So those are the two areas we're really trying to focus on. How do we scale and take things outside of our academic medical centers or other urban hubs? And then how do we take advantage of our genetic diversity to allow for discovery as well as diversification of clinical trials? Mm, that's really interesting, the piece around diversity. It's not something I would have necessarily known it or, you know, thought about Houston as such a diverse place. And uh, I did Google it, by the way, while you were talking there. And it turns out alongside the likes of New York and Toronto, you know, in North America is one of the most diverse places is Houston, which is, you learn something new every day, Claire, which is which is wonderful. And we've got about seven or eight minutes left. And I know your time is precious. And one thing I wanted to talk about, if I I look at your career and particularly what you're doing now and you've come out of retirement into a tech company. You are another example of a great, uh, I suppose, female role model that we've had on the podcast. Um, so I know you're part of a number of groups, so one including the um, the global uh, leaders, I believe it is, uh, which is uh, a, a women's group. And I'm guessing you're also just a, a mentor to other younger females. So any, any thoughts on that subject generally? And and if I rewind back to one of the things you almost said right at the start, it's almost like you took a very non-traditional path, uh, you know, quite a few years ago versus now. And how have things changed, you know, in being a female in the life science industry? Do you feel like there are more opportunities opening? And what's your role for, for younger women within that, I suppose, wider ecosystem? This is something, again, we could have another podcast on this as well. <laughs> that's that's I mean, why you're, you're, you're a great guest, but you're a nightmare guest for me because I could, have <laughs> done five, I could, I, I could do five different topics with you. So, uh, yeah, but I'd love you to, to talk about it. This one's close to my heart, so I'd love you to talk about it. Absolutely. You know, I do, I do participate in a lot of groups, do a ton of mentoring. I think that um, we have made a remarkable amount of progress at um, recognizing the need for diversity in our C-suite, diversity in our boardrooms. What I don't think we're doing as good a job is executing on that. Um, I think that we still need to help people understand that uh, differing opinions and experiences and perspectives is beneficial. I think people still kind of tend towards wanting to um, surround them with people that are similar in in education and experience, and um, you know, and that's that's not just around being a woman or being an underrepresented minority. But, you know, sometimes you see uh, kind of, uh, you know, academic, like I, you know, I want somebody who went to one of these seven schools or has, you know, this experience. And so I think that as an industry, we need to spend some time saying, what is the value of bringing in diversity, especially at those highest levels? Because we know that, that if you have diversity at those higher levels, the companies are more successful. And... Um, you know, I, I, that's one of the things that, that I talk to people about a lot is, is one, recognizing the diversity of diversity. Um, it's, it is, I'm incredibly passionate about women and underrepresented groups, but I'm also passionate about, you know, maybe you need to have somebody who didn't get an MD, maybe somebody who has a different educational background and their perspective can be very valuable because they understand some things that you don't understand. 
So I think that's that's really important. Um, I think it is it is getting better. What I tell young people when I talk to them, because I think especially for those of us who saw education as our path, uh, that was a very linear path. It was you went to college and then you chose your graduate program. And if you went on for a postdoc, you chose that. And when you made a decision, it was binary. You did this graduate program, not that graduate program. But when you get into the real world and the working world, those decisions are not binary anymore. And the skills you learn at one job are translatable to another job. And so you should think about it more as a mosey, um, as a web to say, what are you learning? What skills are you getting today that you might be able to take to your next opportunity? I think um, you know, young people also kind of want to know that when they're used to linear, I'm now on my next path. And I will start at, you know, in this role, if you're doing the academic, right, I'll be an assistant professor, an associate professor, a full professor, a department chair, and just getting comfortable with that not being a linear path anymore and seeing that as opportunity to learn different skill sets that one day you can bring together into a, a novel package where you've got experience from a bunch of different things that allow you to maybe think a little more strategically because you've had a breadth of experience. I'm so glad we got your perspective on that because I think you bring up some fantastic points in terms of, I love what you said about that kind of value of bringing in diversity at the, the highest level of business. And it's, it's, a, it's a theme we hear throughout the podcast interviews we do where it leads to better business outcomes. And so it's certainly something that I'm glad people like yourself are encouraging uh, within within the sector. And although COVID is, is less, I suppose, a hot topic as it was yeah, 18 months ago or even 12 months ago when uh, we were doing podcast interviews. I What I wanted to ask you about was your experience during COVID because my understanding is you you played quite a critical role in, in different parts. And so talk to us about how that was for you and what, what nickname, you managed to get a nickname, I think at some point in time. So how how uh, how that worked out for you because you given your expertise and your academic background you became a bit of a mini celebrity in uh, due to COVID. <laughs> I I got I went viral for being viral. Um, so <laughs> you know we we knew that COVID was an issue and we knew that there was a pocket in New York uh, in the middle of March of 2020. And at the time, uh, my daughter was crazy about musicals. And so for spring break that year, we planned a family trip to New York. We had tickets to a couple of musicals. And, you know, I checked with the people at UT Southwestern. They said, don't go to New Rochelle. It's fine. Wash your hands. Um, and so we got on our plane on March 11th. And while we were in the air, the WHO declared it a global pandemic. When we landed, um, Rita Wilson and Tom Hanks came out with their COVID diagnosis. And we thought, well, here we are in New York, one of the epicenters, and uh, what do we do? And so we said, well, we have tickets to Mean Girls tonight. So we went to see Mean Girls and um, enjoyed ourselves immensely. But again, knowing what we know now, because we didn't know a lot then, we, uh, we sat, I think we were in the eighth row. Um, so I'm pretty sure that those singers were um, shedding virus all over our entire group. The next day, they closed Broadway. And so we thought, well, there's no reason for us to be here. I was petrified we were going to get stuck in New York and have to drive home to Texas. And so we flew home. We were there for 36 hours and we came down with COVID. And um, I will say it was petrifying because we didn't know anything. We didn't know um, 
much about the disease yet. All I knew is I was reading stories about people who sounded just like me who were dying. And I thought, am I going to die? Is my husband going to die? Is, is our daughter going to die? Um, did we get somebody sick? Did we get somebody sick who now is going to die? Um, and so, but just kind of going through that, I was able to get tested again at the time. Testing was in short supply. I was only able to get tested through my relationship at UT Southwestern. Couldn't get my husband or daughter tested. But once I had that positive test, I was able to donate convalescent plasmid. I was also the positive control as UT Southwestern was spinning up some of their tests. So when they needed a positive control for antibodies, I would go down and give some blood um, and, and told the story uh, a lot because I thought that it was incredibly important for people to understand and to kind of demystify it a little bit and to and to help people appreciate um you know, that this was something that could come into their backyard and could be right here. And um, ultimately, that's what happened, you know, a few months later. But at the time, it was it was really, I think, as a as a as a country, as a state, we thought about it as somebody else's problem. And so I felt very, very strongly that as an immunologist, I had a job to kind of help people understand how their immune system works. <laughs> Again, I like to say that was, uh, you know, COVID was a time for an immunologist to shine. We don't get to shine very often. But to, to just make it a real disease and, and a real thing that, that people could understand and know somebody who had gone through it. Um, and I just thought that was, that was an important role that I could play. And so I was happy to tell my story and, um, you know, do some work to do some public education and hopefully maybe help people make some better choices. Well, it sounds like you played a, a really vital role, particularly in, in educating people during the difficult time. And, you know, being in the U.S. at the time, you know, I, similar to yourself, a couple of days after you flew, I was flying from North Carolina back to Boston. And I remember my wife saying, get on a flight, don't go near anyone and just be you forget now how scary a time it was because we knew nothing about and we weren't the wearing masks and, right we no, weren't, we weren't, we weren't and, wearing I, masks. and the funniest thing is i we, i remember getting on the plane and my wife was like but you know get some lysol wipes so i was there wiping you know because we didn't know how it was transmitted so i was wiping the seat i was wiping the mm -hmm. armrest i was wiping the table but not wearing a mask because at the time we were saving them for our, our healthcare providers right and we didn't know how it was being transmitted or, and, and you know, it was also just that sense of, God, if you get it, you're going to die. That was the immediate thought. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad your family, obviously, you were all fine and you ended up playing such a, a pivotal role in, in educating. And obviously there's a lot of misinformation um, at the time as well. So I think having someone with your expertise and we're, we're, we're running short on time and there was a couple of final things I wanted. And, you know, I knew this was going to be, an interesting interview today because you have such a such an eclectic and incredible you've had we're just such a fantastic career and you've done so many things please refer to me as a mosey a mosey yeah 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 it's it's a great word uh, and describes all i feel like it under underplays the, the, the value you've added in all the world so i'm not i'm not too attached to it so i suppose you know given given the work that you do today, the one thing you said right at the start is you talked about um, understanding the impact of your dollars. Um, and you were talking uh, specifically around uh, your fundraising uh, time and the work that you were doing. And it really, I wrote it down because it really was an interesting um, phrase. So talk to us about your 
being at Form Bio where it's a they've they've done a fundraise of I think thirty million dollars. I read. I'm sure, I'm not sure if there's been exist uh, additional fundraising since, but. So now you're in that environment and you've been on the VC side of things as well, but how do you then articulate the impact of, of the dollar of, of the people that are, have been involved in, in the fundraise and in, in helping you? So I suppose spinning that background to you, given your scientific background, given the technology play, how do you, how do you approach that from, I suppose, speaking to investors or making investors understand the impact of their dollars, whether it be literal dollars in terms of return or the long-term potential of what you guys can achieve. That is something that, you know, in my years as an investor, I really got a deep appreciation for. Um, It is so easy to spend your investment dollars in a way that is not directly tied to generating value. And, um, you know, especially when you're talking about scientists, because scientists are so often driven by scientific curiosity and not necessarily how do we turn this into a drug or a product or, or something that would be reimbursed in some way. And so, you know, I very much try to bring to the table some rigor around that. How do we make sure that when we are making decisions about where we apply dollars, that we're thinking about the return, whether it is, um, you know, an actual, like you said, an actual return on that investment or some sort of value creation within the company. And that's one of the reasons we think Form Bio is well positioned right now. Biotech has been hammered, especially cell and gene therapy companies. Um, everybody is, is trading at a fraction of, of what they were two years ago. We had this COVID high where a ton of money poured into the sector. Um, and everyone was excited, you know, science is the answer, science, we're going to science our way out of this. But now people are cash constrained. And so that we think provides us an opportunity to say, why don't we make sure we're helping you spend your dollars the most effective way possible? How do we make sure when you take something into a manufacturing run, you're going to get the most drug product out of there that's going to be the safest, that's going to allow you to progress this through clinical development as quickly as possible. And so that's really, I think, the fundamental value proposition of our our advanced solution for the cell and gene therapy space is how do we help you spend your dollars the best way possible to generate as much value by improving that process? What a tremendous answer. I did not know what direction you were going to go in there, but well played. That was really well done. And I'm going to I'm gonna end the conversation at that point because there are too many avenues for me to go down and I want to be respectful of your time. And quite honestly, it's been, a, it's been a genuine pleasure having you on the podcast. When we met a few weeks ago, I was excited about the prospect of getting you on. And then you made my job harder because I had to then research you and my PA had to help out because there was so much stuff. But I'm glad we've managed... <laughs> to um i suppose get you know get your career in a nutshell and you know, you've given some fantastic insights and inspiration to our listeners as well so thanks for being a guest on the show oh i so appreciate it this was so much fun and um you know i love helping people get excited about the potential of science thanks claire Hi again, thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, molecule2marketpod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter 
and we will see you again next week. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.